This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and I'm here with my guest host today, Danny Shapiro, who was a guest on this show late last year. Danny is the author of Still Writing, plus five incredible novels and the best-selling memoirs, Slow Motion and Devotion, with a third coming out in April. We're like little kids excited to bring you the legendary Ms. Terry McMillan today, who is currently on tour for her eighth novel, I Almost Forgot About You, published by Crown and currently getting raves from the New York Times, Book Review, the LA Times, and O Magazine, to name a few. Terry is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Waiting to Exhale, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, A Day Late and a Dollar Short, The Interruption of Everything, and the editor of Breaking Ice, an anthology of contemporary African-American fiction. And like Danny, Terry's taught for years as a professor, so I'm looking forward to hearing the two of them talk shop and craft. Four of Terry's novels have been made into movies with stars like Whitney Houston, Angela Bassett, and Whoopi Goldberg, playing what Terry's best known for, characters full of wit and rich with friendship. Oh, and uh, great sex scenes, but we'll get to that later. I thank you so much for joining us for what is sure to be a ridiculously fun interview filled with hilarity and I'm also guessing adult language. I believe this because we've been chatting recently and some things are just obvious and too much fun to tame. So if you've got kids within earshot, you might want to wait a bit. The three of us will be here when you're ready, slightly rebellious and always grateful, digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Danny, I'm so excited you're doing this with me today. I adore you and I adore Terry so much and I cannot wait. Oh, well, Linda, I was so honored that you asked me to guest host this particular podcast because I'm a huge fan of Terry's and I'm just really excited to talk fiction, talk shop, you know, just all of it with both of you guys. So thank oh, you. Yay, Terry, are you there, sweet pea? I'm here. Thank you. I'm excited too. I've never done this before. And I'm just looking forward to getting to know both of you better. Mm, you mean you've never done Skype before? Skype no. audio, right? Because we had to teach you. It was super fun. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Lord, I have my tutorial. Uh, and as soon as my son gets here, I'm going to have him show me how to add voicemail to my cell phone. Oh, you know what? I love having my son come over and give me tutorials. He's coming tomorrow to teach me how to better use my iTunes because I am an absolute idiot when it comes to iTunes. So we three have that in common. We all have sons who are our technical support. <laughs> Many other things. I wouldn't know how to do anything. You know, Spotify. Instagram, I know how to do Spotify. Twitter. <laughs> I don't, and if he's not around, I don't understand how to, I don't, I feel like I'm handling some sort of futuristic piece of equipment that I have no idea what to do with. I have to say this. I don't yeah. even try. I don't. Yeah, I, but I'm really I, proud of you, Terry, because you rallied last week and you got Skype and you're, I did. you did it. I didn't even have to shame you into it. Well, it would have cost me $168 for an hour with my computer guy. <laughs> so I said, let me just figure this one out. So... Terry, I was so elated when you agreed to do this show, in part because, you know, you're both such incredible novelists. I've never written a novel. I've edited them and I've read them my whole life, but to write one is a whole different deal. And, you know, Danny, you're a memoirist who's yes. written five novels. You're on your third memoir now. Terry, you've written eight freaking novels. I would just listen to anything the two of you had to say on the topic. So, I'm especially looking forward to talking shop about craft as well, because, Danny, you're a professor. So, wow. I used to be a professor. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm tenured at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if I can even tell you what a declarative sentence is anymore. But. Well, you see, but, but this is the thing. I just came off of a week of teaching, and I really love to teach. But when I think about, you know, what it means to teach writing, it feels to me like... You know, there are elements of craft that you can teach and you can, you know, students can learn and then it's like they have tools in a toolbox. But ultimately, you know, it's so much about so many other ineffable things that I would love to talk with you about, Terry, and, you know, like just about courage and about persistence and about large heartedness and about like witnessing the world around you and deciding what matters to you and how, you know, 
of all of the stories and of all of the characters and of all of the situations in the world, choosing the ones that are going to make you want to kind of dig into something and stay there alone in your room for however long it takes to write the thing. You know? Well, you know, I don't really think writing a craft can be taught. I think you have to subtract from what's there until you end up with that little tiny pea. Of, and inside of that pea is everything else, which I just refer to as emotions. And that's sometimes what a lot of people like to skip over. Or they like to do this whole circumvention. And they skate around it. And I just think that, you know, in addition to being a really good liar, you have to be nosy and... I'm very nosy, and I just want to know, I want to be able to jump out of my own skin and into someone else's heart mm-hmm. and into their soul and into their head mm-hmm. and learn something from about their humanity that I can feel empowered by. And I just have to get lost, and I love getting lost. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, I've been thinking a lot lately about the difference of like the feeling of writing fiction and writing memoir. And I described myself as a novelist and wrote nothing but fiction for the first, oh, I don't know, decade or more of my writing life. And then I wrote a memoir and then I went back and wrote two more novels. And I thought, well, I wrote the memoir that I'm ever going to write in my life. And now I'm going to go back to writing fiction for the rest of my life. And somehow that's not what happened. It's not the books that wanted to be written. But I, I've thought so much about the the way that to write fiction is to create a world. Like you make the world and then you step into it and it becomes at least as real to you as your own life, maybe even yes. more real. Like it's like a dream that you step into. Like I know one of my last novels was set in this town in Massachusetts that my in-laws are from. And for years, whenever I would go visit them, I actually felt like I was just stepping into the landscape of my novel, not visiting my in-laws. Do you have that feeling a little bit of like once you've created a world and I've always found it difficult to then leave that world and those characters behind. I mourn them. I miss them as if, I mean, not all of them, but (laughs) not all of them, but certainly my favorites. And I feel like they're still out there somewhere in the dimension that I created living their lives. Well, I think that, For me, it's a journey that I didn't really ask for. I mean, on some levels I did because, like I said, I'm nosy and I'm curious about why people do what they do, including myself. And so what I am, I'm very generous in giving, donating my flaws (laughs) to my characters. And in a way, it's a very sneaky backdoor way to some extent of uh, trying to come to terms with some things. But... I like traveling with these characters in such a way that it may take them a lot of bumps and hills and valleys and hills and valleys and corners and curves to arrive at another level in their lives. I mean, I don't believe in happy endings. Well, I do like them, but I don't believe in them. But if you can just get from A to D as opposed to A to Z, I'm going to go with you and I want to know how hard it is for some of us to travel emotionally and to rise above some of whatever it is that's bothering us. When I get there, I am happy for them. I am grateful for them, and I feel empowered. But there are so many different aspects of our lives as women, as human beings. You know, I mean, there are like a million novels we could write, but I am usually relieved. But when I'm done with them, I'm done. It's like an ex-husband. (laughs) (laughs) yeah but even ex-husbands come back around i mean i just talked to mine this morning he's like he's got the flu and i feel bad for him and i'm so i'm sending him something in the mail i mean you still care about your ex-husbands i just talked to my ex-husband i know (laughs) two days ago and he sent me a picture of his boyfriend (laughs) and i said you know he's cute he's cute i just hope he treats you well and vice versa And that you don't lie to him like you lied to me. Oh, God in heaven. You know what this is bringing up. I mean, this is just, this is the infamous Oprah episode where the two of you were on stage. Man, you, I remember that episode so well. You could cut the air with a knife and I could feel it at home. What was that, like 15 years ago? Yeah, I didn't see it when you first did it, but I watched it the other day knowing I was going to be speaking with you. 
And like, what I mean, and you and I share having sat with Oprah and, you know, and had conversations in common, but the level of like being sort of pinned to the spot in some way, and she can do that like no one else I've ever encountered. Well, the irony of it is that I wrote 73 questions for him that I thought she would probably ask. Uh-huh. And you know she lifted those questions from my list to ask. and oh. But he was uncomfortable, but I was, like, really just pissed off. You were hilarious. I remember I was sitting at home because I never missed one episode ever, ever, until, ironically, the very last year of her show, I had a deadline, and I actually couldn't watch it, but I never missed an episode back then. So, Terry, I was watching you thinking, oh, man, oh, man, I have never seen anything like this on television ever. And you were being so hilarious. You were being such a hard ass. But you were being also, you could feel your heart and you could feel him. His like, he was trying so hard to be, be a good guy because he is a good guy. And he's like, I love you, Terry. And you're like, I thought, oh my God, she's going to murder the poor guy. And then I loved seeing later on as you guys became friends and, you know, there was such a healing and it was a public healing and I think it helped a lot of people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But you know. It takes a lot to get there. It was brave to do that. And, you know, the word that comes to mind for me is like, you were like incandescent, you know, like with your own, you know, anger. It was beautiful. Like it was really uncomfortable. It was also really beautiful because it was very real. Like there was nothing polished about it. Well, the thing is, is that, I mean, I have a reputation. I have to learn how not to make faces and which I did on that show. Oh God. (laughs) And I rarely look at, any TV show I've been on, I mean, I can count how many times I've actually gone back and watched them because a lot of them are embarrassing. I don't even realize the facial expressions and what I do with my hands. And, you know, because once I was with Katie Couric right after a lot of this and she said, so, Terry, um, tell me, what was it like when you found out that, you know, your husband was gay? And I said, well, how would you feel, Katie? And I don't remember her answer, but... Also, the woman, her name is Judy Smith, that the character on Scandal is based on. She was working with me to tell me how to be on my best behavior on these shows during this period of time. Because the book that had just was coming, was out. It was happening at the same time, which really angered me even more that I had to shift the focus away from my book onto my marriage. Yeah, it it really annoyed the hell out of me, to be honest with you. It's such an interesting thing that you're bringing up because, like, as a writer, I mean, Doing the work of writing is a private thing. You do it by yourself. You do it alone in a room. And it has to be private and internal and, like, you know, based on, you know, the stuff that most moves you in some way in order for it to be as good as it is. And then, you know, you have this public life as a writer, you know, that you have more than many writers where, you know, you're like a figure in the world. And then this thing happens in your life. That isn't something that you invented, that you, you know, that you put in a novel, that you crafted, that you honed, you know, that you made. And then that's like out there at the same time, like almost dual stories. There's that story and then the book. It was annoying. Yeah. It was such a major distraction. And I just resented all of it happening simultaneously, you know, and oh. Let's skip the subject before I get pissed off. All oh, wait, up. I got a topic I want to talk about. <laughs> art, art imitating life, Terry. Okay, so the timing of this book, the new book, I almost forgot about you. This timing was so freaky synchronistic for me because Dr. Georgia, your protagonist, she lives in the Bay Area. I grew up in the Bay Area. She finds out at the start of the book that someone she'd loved over 30 years prior is dead. Which leads her to reevaluate everything. And I happened to pick up the book the day after being in the Bay Area for the funeral of a man I was in love with in high school over 30 years ago. And so my question really is for both of you. I want to start with Terry, though. But you've sold millions of books, and you've seen four of them go to the screen. And simply from a number standpoint, I imagine that so many people must say to you some version of what I just did. Like, you've written my story, right? Do you hear that all the time? Well, yes. I get that a lot. And the big thing is, is how did you know? And have you had all of these experiences? And I'm like, no. And how, how many of have you, have you gone back and looked up your old laws? I'm like, no, I'm not that curious. 
And some of them I still happen to know, but I'll put it this way. I think that a lot of what happens to us as human beings, as women, it's pretty universal. I mean, you know, when your heart is broken, it doesn't matter. It's broken. And I don't care if you're 30 or 60, it's still, it's broken. And that's not something that just happens to you. And that's one of the reasons why I try to tell stories about things that I, I'm curious about and that I question how people get through things. And, you know, when I wrote Stella, I was trying to give myself permission to love someone much younger than myself. And most of what was in the book were pretty much lies. There's only two things in there was actually based on the real world because I wrote the book in 31 days and Jonathan wasn't even in this country yet. And it was basically about the double standard that I was questioning. You know, men do this all the time. What, why do I feel so guilty? And obviously I got over it. <laughs> but, you know, I think that I don't care how tragic something is that we write about, especially memoirs. Somebody always will be able to identify with it. And I mean, that's what is humane about it's our humanity that we basically are even addressing and or questioning. And it's universal. And I don't care what color you are. Yeah. When you and I were talking the other day, Terry, about our exes and we were comparing notes. And frankly, that was one of the funniest conversations I've ever had in my life. But, oh, but, but we got to the point where at, in the end, it's just always about forgiveness, isn't it? I mean, this new book, I almost forgot about you. There's so much beautiful forgiveness in, in the drama and in the hilarity. Well, I mean, it took me a while to get there because there are very few people in my life I've actually had to forgive. And my ex is on the top of that list. And the thing is, is that what I wanted to make clear, or I felt a need to make clear since it became so public was that I was never really angry at him because of his sexuality. You know, I was glad that he found it, and I don't think that he did it at my expense. I was angry at him because he was trying to take my money, and I had a prenuptial agreement, and that's what really pissed me off. And then he went to all these different degrees and got this tacky lawyer. But I was apoplectic and for three years, and if you mentioned his name, it was like scraping my fingernails on a chalkboard. And I even thought I saw somebody once that was him, and I was going to run his ass over. <laughs> yeah, but you did forgive. How did you get to that point? Was it just time? It was basically time, and also I realized how sick and tired my family and friends were of hearing me whine about all of it. And it took almost three years, and then I actually won a lawsuit against him, because, uh, you know, it was related, but to stop him and his attorney from basically, you know, contesting my prenuptial agreement. And I just said, you know, I'm not going to do that. You're not taking, you know, you're not going to violate me this way. And so when I won the lawsuit, I could have really ruined his life and her life. She ended up retiring his little sleazy lawyer. And I ended up winning. And they said, Terry, we can go to trial and you can own him. My lawyer said that. And I said, what do you mean own him? He said, you can own his life. Every dollar he earns for the rest of his life, you can get a few cents of it or whatever. And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And I said, no, I'm not going to trial. I said, this is over. I hung up and I called him. He was a mess. He was in tears. I said, we're done. But something, it literally, and I said this on Oprah, it was like all of that anger just flew. I was at a in the parking lot at my grocery store when I got this call and I rolled the window down and the anger just flew out. I am not exaggerating. I'm not yeah. making it up. It just flew out. And I just, that's when I picked up the phone and called Jonathan. I said, we're good. And I have not felt any anger and animosity, hostility towards him. And I mean, I ran into him like a year later. I mean, he was a mess. We talked for 45 minutes and fast forward the film a year later, and he came to one of my readings in Miami and just hugged me and cried like a baby. Oh, my God. Terry, that is so beautiful. Wow. Kind of feels like supernatural healing. Danny, I want to circle back to that thread of the universality of books. You write about so many different topics. And when you walk through the world, do people just sort of accost you and like Glennon Doyle Melton said last month, say, me too, me too. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, the book that that really, really kind of like brought that up so intensely for me was devotion. And it was interesting because when I, mm. when I was writing devotion, it was so like me, so idiosyncratically me, you know, it was like a little bit about, you know, growing up in a religious home. Yeah, you and, have a unique experience of that fundamentalist Jewish background. Yeah, yeah this like deeply observant, you know, background and parents who were in conflict about it. And yeah. then, you know, just issues about identity and rebellion and all this stuff with my mother, with whom I had a really difficult relationship with, and then becoming a mother and leaving New York after 9-11 and moving to the country. Right. It, was, it was so specific that I thought, I finally have done it now. I've written a book that no one will read. And also it was coming out in these little bite-sized pieces. And I was like, what, what are these bite-sized pieces? I know how to create narrative momentum. And instead I'm like writing prose poems. What yeah. am I doing? And the book came out and I really thought you'd have to be Jewish and practice yoga and be like <laughs> dabble in Buddhism and like love to read Thomas Merton and like live in the Northeast and, you know, be a mother of a, a boy. Like I had all these ideas in my head of the only people who would relate to this. And I started getting these emails and letters like from day one that were, you've told my story. We have the same mother, you know, and the, you've told my story was coming from, you know, Christians and Catholics and Muslims and old people and young people and people of every race and every sexuality and every, like it just men, women. And it was a life changing experience for me because what I realized really deeply for the first time was that by telling my own story as specifically as I possibly could, I was telling a universal story because deep inside, we're all not that different. What we feel like, Terry, what you were saying, you know, love is love is love. You know, heartbreak is heartbreak is heartbreak and grief is grief is grief. And it's all specific to each of us. But at the same time, when we really are able to look into, you know, the heart and soul of another, whether it's through reading a great novel or it's through reading memoir or it's through having a really heartfelt chat with, you know, with someone, we find that out. It, it cured me of my feeling of separateness. cured you? Did you say it cured you? Yeah, it cured me of my feeling of separateness, of, you know, outsiderness. Well, well I, have to, I want to interrupt you because one of the things that I can tell you, I have the utmost respect for memoirs. I just do. Because I think it takes a certain, an amazing level of bravery. <laughs> <laughs> You think that's funny? No, only because I'm reworking part of mine right now and then I'm going to release it. For me, it's so natural for me to be an open book and to just put my shit out there because that's how I've always been. But people tell me it's brave. I don't know if it's bravery or stupidity. But No, 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 wait, wait, wait. This is the thing. When I say brave, I don't mean for human consumption. I don't mean it that way. I mean, you have to be very fucking honest with yourself to tell the, your own truth. And even if it's just an interpretation of your truth, and then you may find out as you're writing it that it is not your real truth, but that it's your truth that you have come to understand and that you either have to reject or you have to own it. And that, to me, I don't do that as a novelist, which I said earlier, you know, it's like I donate my stuff. What I know are my flaws and all that, because I don't think I could write a memoir. I would probably be, I mean, I want to change, but I want to do it gradually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say, gee, Terry, you really are fucked up. Um, and how could you ever think that you could tell someone else's story? I mean, come on, when you can't even own up to your own shit. <laughs> so I'll stick to lying. <laughs> it's just it's a it's, it's just a different way of I think really doing the same thing. You know, I mean, because it is you can't create believable characters and, you know, donate your flaws to them or whatever, unless you really are, you know, have the self-knowledge to know what those flaws are. But, you know, in this strange position that I'm in of having written multiple memoirs, which is yeah. not something I ever thought I would do, is one of the things that's really interesting about it is that all it is, is what I know now. You know, like I remember my friend Sylvia Borstein, who's this Buddhist teacher and writer who's in her 80s now, 
when devotion was coming out, I was so nervous and I started to see that it was helping people. And that made me feel even more like a fraud because I didn't write a book to help any, I was trying to help myself and mm-hmm. helping people. And I thought, who am I? And I'm nobody. And I was so scared. I actually, I was about to go on the today show and I was so nervous and I called Sylvia and she said, sweetheart, you've written a book about what you know now. And it was okay. such a freeing thing because I thought, Oh, I'll know more later. Maybe. And then I can, write, I can write a book about that. Well, and you know, that's part of the challenge for me, Danny, is people have been hearing me talk about my memoir for years. And the reason why it takes so long is because you change as you're going, right? So I thought I had finished it. I was all ready to shop it and go with it earlier this year. And parts of the work don't work for me. They're not representative of what I want to put out right now. So I'm just having to change some things and it's frustrating. It's almost like you have to hurry and write those suckers because if you don't, (laughs) if you don't, you're sitting there going, wait, that's not true anymore. Well, the person who starts the book is not the same person (laughs) who finishes it. Um, Plus, although Terry, I want to go back to something you said. Did you say that one of your novels you wrote in how many days? 31 days. That's 31 days. I wrote wrote a chapter a day. I had 31 chapters. I I was like on cruise control. But the bottom line is, is that I had fallen in love with this young man. I went to Jamaica because I was grieving the loss of my mother who had died almost two years prior. And then my best girlfriend, that part of the story to some extent is true. And I was numb. I just, I was numb and I just had to break it up all of it. And that's what made me go to Jamaica. And, you know, and then this guy starts flirting with me and I said, this is a joke. What is he doing? Then I said, oh, what the hell? I'll fuck him. I've never fucked anybody. <laughs> and I did. And it was a little more to it than that. And then I was like, oh, Terry. And, you know, X number of days went by. But the, but the point was is that when I got home, I was so conflicted because it was almost as if I had been resurrected. You know what I mean? Because I felt dead. And I wanted to be sure that I was clear about what I was really feeling. If I was just grateful to be resurrected and not even sexually, but just that I felt alive again, that I could feel something. And so I was clear in that. And that's what made me start writing the story. And, and, and the long and short of it, I don't want to talk anymore about that, but it started out as a poem. Then it was a short story. And I told him what I do. And he said, Terry, he didn't know who I was. He had never heard of me. Thank God. And it turned out his older sister had later on when I found out. But he said, well, Terry, you said that when you when you write a novel, you just lie. So just lie. And I said, well, I guess this young man has given me permission. <laughs> uh, but and I told my agent, I said, and I, well, no, I didn't tell my agent. I take that back. And I wrote a chapter a day. And I mean, you talk about lying like it was coming out of my nose. And I had a good friend who worked at a, who owned a bookstore. And I would read her every chapter every day aloud on the phone. And when it was done, I edited it. And then I was supposed to submit a different book, A Day Late and a Dollar Short. And I submitted. I just sent it. My agent said, Terry, just send it to Carol, my editor at Viking at the time. And she opened it up and she called. She said, Terry, who is Stella? <laughs> and I said, well, and they loved it. So um, that's, okay. yeah. Okay, this brings up a topic. You write better sex scenes than anyone. What is your secret? Are you just really good at field research, or are you gifted with that juicy imagination, or is it a little of both? Well, the past couple of years, I'd say imagination. <laughs> exceptions a few interludes there's some good uh, sex uh, scenes and i almost forgot about uh, you uh, 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 you know but the thing is you have to understand i mean it, it was a fantasy and when you give yourself permission mm-hmm. to float you know you float mm-hmm. and, and you know tourism in jamaica went up 15 percent because of that book uh-uh. <laughs> i'm not i'm not exaggerating put it in the paper oh my god it's like the eat pray love effect bali is just getting run over by tourists <laughs> But you know what I was going to say, too? You know, one memoir where I said I, I love Rick Bragg. Mm-hmm. When I've read his books, I thought he was black. Because it, what he, the way he wrote, it reminded me so much of my family. And I was really struck by that. That how was it possible and experience so much the same and we were not the same. And that's why what you just said, Danny, 
about being Jewish and how you didn't think other people would identify. There are so many books that I read that, I mean, if you saw what was on my floor and on my bookcase right now, it, 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 I put some of this, I'm in the Times, the New York Times tomorrow. I saw, I saw you, that. Yeah. You already saw it? Oh, Lord. Oh, okay. no. It's, I noticed a couple of things about that. One was you have Home Going on your pile, which is just such a beautiful book. And the range of the books that are on your reading pile. And also the, this is going to be like, I'm a little scared to even say this, but who cares? The, uh, you know, that question that they always ask about, like, what do you think is overrated? And you said the corrections, which I completely agree with. <laughs> and, but, but I took it to this place where I also read the piece on you that was in the LA Times this week, which was such a lot. I didn't see that. It's a really nice piece. I mean, I think it was this week, wasn't it? Or maybe I just looked at it online and it looked like it was this week. But it was, you had lunch with this, you know, lovely reporter. and uh, I think, I, what was her name? In Whatever. Time. Yeah, but I, I was asking when was it going to come. Well, keep going, keep going. Forget about yeah. it. Well, I'm here, to tell, I'm here to tell you it's out. But um, it's a really just great profile of you. And in it, talk about the way that when women writers write about women and domestic life or women's friendships that it very quickly gets labeled either chiclet or women's fiction. There's no men's fiction section. Yeah. I said dude fiction. And that's what she quoted you saying that you said, you know, there's no dude lit, you know, and also means it's not meant to be taken seriously. As if, if you took away everybody, if you took love away from our lives, where would we be? Don't tell me that's not serious. Somebody breaks your heart. Don't tell me that it's almost like a death. It's the same thing. Okay. Okay, Terry, I got to read something from your new book because this is so bloody beautiful. Okay, so it's page 66 and 67. And you're, I'm not going to read the whole list because it's so long, but you're talking about an ex and why you loved him. So you say, this is how he loved me. He let me fall asleep on top of him. He took my braids out. He spooned me almost every night. He whispered in my ears. He sucked my fingers. He sucked my toes. Okay, so it's a long list, right? And then you say, and so you're talking about the end, and you say, he simply stopped loving me, and this is how he did it. He stopped talking to me unless I spoke to him. He stopped holding my hand. He stopped kissing me goodnight. He stopped smiling at me. He stopped laughing. And it's like you read these two pages because it's essentially two pages of how he loved you and then how he stopped. And you think every single person knows this feeling. Everybody. Right? And if they don't, God bless them. I mean, God bless them. You want to know something really funny? What? This was what my ex-gay husband. That's what I figured it was. Because he loved you so much, oh, which so is funny. why it hurt, right? And that's why it's like, you know what? And I told him, I said, I'm going to tell you something which you need to understand. And I've told other people, audiences, especially women who are like, oh, how could you? Don't you? You should have killed him. And I said, you know what? I'm going to tell you women something. He is the yardstick I use to measure how good it feels to be loved right. I mean, really. And I told him that. And he said, really, Terry? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, the feeling is pretty mutual because, you know, and I said, you know, because nobody taught you. This was intuitive. You didn't have to learn how to do all this stuff, um, how to be kind and how to be gentle and how to all of that. You, nobody can teach you that. And, you know, people don't understand all this to say about how our work is categorized. You know, they make it seem as though this is all we think about. But it's not. And then I'll put it this way. You know, I wrote a book called Who Asked You, which is about a grandmother whose kids are crack, one's daughter's a crackhead, and et cetera. And she, her husband's suffering from dementia. And she's, you know, she's trying to figure out what to do, you know, about her grandkids now that her daughter is like this drug addict. And her whole life changes. But, you know, she's got older sisters who are always telling her what she should and shouldn't be doing. Well, that book. You know, the New York Times didn't even review it. And I'm saying to myself, but, and the only reason I think they reviewed this one is because I said something mean to them when they asked me to do something else about a year and a half ago, that I was their favorite author. And I said, are you kidding me? You don't even review my books anymore. 
So no, I won't do whatever. I can't even remember. I went off into them about the whole chick lit and pop fiction and dude fiction. And then I just basically said, you know, leave me alone. You don't respect me. So don't come pretending like you really like me now. And now reviewed my book. Now I'm in this, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, is you have to call them out on this stuff. And you just do. Let me ask you a question. And also from the um, Times piece that'll be out in, in <laughs> book review tomorrow. They had asked you about what's your favorite self-help book. And you said, I don't like self-help books. I do, however, I do respect the Bible, but have more often than not turned to Bartlett's familiar quotations and the real meaning of life and so on. Wondering, is there a spiritual component at all to the way that you approach your work? Or what do you think about that? What do you think about prayer and well, I'll put it this way. Every morning when I wake up, usually when I'm really writing, which I haven't been lately, the first thing I do when I wake up is pray. That's what I do and before I turn on a stupid computer. And, you know, I don't infuse any spiritual stuff in my books or with my characters unless it's important to their character. But underneath all of this, and I believe this is true of most writers that write about human emotions and not espionage and all that stuff, is we are more interested in the quality of life. I am more interested in joy and being a good human being and giving everything that I can the best that I have and treating people with respect, all of it, everybody. And so that's what fuels me to do this. So I don't have to like come out and say it, you know, but bad behavior, I make sure that it's not honored. And that you suffer because of it, for the most part, because I think that basically most people are good. And, you know, it's what happens when we suffer that I'm interested in so that we can get back to a level of joy. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, years ago, I don't know where it was, I read that somewhere life is a series of hills and valleys. So when you're up there, milk that shit. And then when you're down, you got to learn something down there. You got to figure it out. You got to struggle. You got to figure out so that when you get back up on top, you just flow. And you're not going to get there by cheating. Some of us don't. But you're going to be exposed. And that's one of the reasons why I do love memoirs. Sort of like you got to open up the wound and oh, yeah. see why you are bleeding. And I've read some really good And I just think that they are just so brave. And I disguise my bravery by giving all kinds of things that, that I worry about and that I think a lot of people worry about and suffer from, and I give it to my characters. I want to uh, do our little intermission here. This is multiple choice, Terry. So it's kind of rapid fire. Okay. Northern California or Southern California? Northern. Are you kidding me? Mm. Hoop earrings or diamond studs? Hoops. <laughs> Hiking or the gym? Um, walking, if you can call it hiking. I don't <laughs> like hiking. Travel or staycation? Travel. Writing or reading? Ooh, mm. both. Mm. Romance or comedy? Uh, both. Writing for the big screen or the small screen? The big screen. Mm. Okay, let me, I got to interrupt you for a sec. What was it like? Sitting in a movie theater and watching your first book go to uh, the big screen. Um, I didn't own it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Before it actually, I mean, I've never been in a movie theater except for when we have to do these test runs, you know, to see how the audience responds. And I remember once sitting next to Whitney and she was running her mouth <laughs> and, and everybody knew she was, we were in, you know, I said, Whitney, shut up. And she's like, girl, <laughs> but. The audience, we saw it in Chicago. And so you do these, but after that, I mean, you know, I've never gone back and looked at myself, like with a couple of exceptions, on television. I have only seen Waiting to Exhale once. I mean, like, really just outside of the, the once. And um, it's, you know, I don't own them that way, but I like books. What was it like to see Angela Bassett playing Stella? I was thinking, you know what? If give me that body, Angela. And she still, I mean, right? she, looks, 
she lives 10 minutes from me and we went out to this, I went somewhere with her about a month and a half ago to do this Smokey Robinson event that she was hosting. And I went to her house and she had this dress on and I said, you know what, Angela, could you come over a little closer so I can slap you in the yeah. next week? I was like, come on, can I just have an inch of your legs? Because my little drumsticks. <laughs> Oh, oh, God. Oh, girl. Okay, so hip-hop or classic rock? I would have to say classic rock. Favorite female singer? Adele. Oh, no kidding. I just saw her twice at the Staples Center. I was like, that, I, 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 I happy. I was there. What? Last week. Which night were you there? Tuesday. I was there Monday and Friday, I think. Oh, I don't remember, but damn, it was good. Oh, and I'm going to Coldplay tonight. I think, you know, I'm just being, oh, yeah, yeah. the older I get, the more fun I'm allowing myself to have. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Terry, in the piece in the LA Times, you talked about being, at, at least at the time, 50 pages into your new book, you know, while you're on tour for this novel. And for the first time in my writing life, I have a book coming out in April, and I've been able to start a new book before the previous book comes out. I've never been able to do that. It's always felt to me like I have to put it to bed completely. I have to go through all of the ups and downs of like birthing it into the world and the publication and the book tour and the anxiety and the, you know, just the roller coaster of all that. And then when it's finally subsided, then I kind of go back in the cave and I figure out what I'm doing next. And I always have hated that about myself. You know, if I have a book come out more or less every three years has kind of been my rhythm. Like one of those years is just kind of devoted to anxiety and travel, you know, for book stuff. And so I was wondering how you do it. Like, are you always deep into a new book when you've got a book coming out or is it unusual this time? What's like, what, how does that work for you? Well, no, the thing is, I'm not saying that this is what has always been the case. Quite a few times, yes. But in this case... I knew the story that I wanted to tell next. And as you and I both know, you know, this whole editorial process can last quite a while. Mm -hmm. So by the time I'm finally finished with the whole process, you know, from the galleys, all of it, I was like fucking sick of Georgia. I was like, you know what? Go on and make your little tables. Give me a break. Oh, I miss (laughs) Georgia. I still miss it. Wait, wait, you know, I won't lie. The bottom line is, is this, I was thinking, okay, here she is in Vancouver and there's old Stan. And I, cause you know, I was, I did not see that coming. I will not lie. Really? But, the oh, way they're ever going to end. But the bottom line is, is when this guy shows up, I was like, oh shit, Terry, what are you doing? And I know all the black women out here who only wanted to see black women with black men are going to be pissed at me. But I was like, fuck it. This is how it happened. Okay. <laughs> this is a story. This is a novel. And I'm going with Georgia I'm going with the flow. And long and short of it is when she gets there, all the stuff on the train, I took a train, the whole business, just to see what it was like. And when she gets there and old Stan shows up, I was like into it. And when she said, well, here we are, he said, no, here we go, baby. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. I was done. (laughs) when When I wrote that, I was done. I was like, okay, Georgia. And, you know, I always go to Cabo usually after I finish a book. And so I went to Cabo, but I knew the next one. And I haven't thought about Georgia. The only time I thought about her is when I'm on my book tour, when I read certain chapters. And other than that, she's dead. And there are people else. There are a lot of other people that I'm worried about. And so this book, I wrote these 50, it's probably more than 50. I have one of those little trays um, I mean, I do a whole thing to get to know these people. And it's about six characters um, that all meet somewhere on a regular basis to have dinner at a diner. And it's called Finding Safety because I think that a lot of us don't know where we are. And some that do are trying to be too secretive about it. And so I wanted to know why. And so I started. And I, I'm, it's not in any shape for anybody to read. Mm-hmm. And... The past month I finished a book tour, I was like gone almost for 40 days. And so now when I finally got home, I was not only exhausted, but I was really sick of Georgia. You know, I was like done with her. 
And I really felt like she was all this publicity and all this stuff, which I'm grateful for, but it stopped me from thinking about the new people in my life that I want to get to know. And that's where it is. Yeah. No, it's an irony of the process that by the time the entire editorial process, publishing process, all the way through to the point where a book is finally out in the world, the writer is, you know, it's like so in the rearview mirror emotionally in a certain way. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. (laughs) It really is. Hey, this makes me uh, think about how mesmerized I was by your use of past and present tense in the book, Terry. You really masterfully move from one to the other so seamlessly. Is that also plotted out ahead of time or do you create that as you go? No. You know, thanks for saying that. But, you know, a lot of times I think that telling a novel is much more organic I mean, like there are people that, and I don't knock them, but there are people that actually outline their novels. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't know she was going back, but I knew for the most part, I didn't know that it was going to, it had to happen when it did happen initially after the first chapter. And I, you know, I'll put it this way. I'm like the conduit. I'm just here to write what it is that my character is telling me what they see, what they feel and what they think. And I just write it down. And I have to jump out of my own skin in order to do it. And so I knew that I didn't even know how many men there were that she was going to ultimately look up. I don't know any of this stuff. And, you know, I'm telling you, I'm serious. I did not know that. And I don't know. I think I got a little lazy later on when I just started, you know, like, forget about trying to find these son of a bitches. Just, you know, send them a text or something, you know. (laughs) But I think you really did, you know, and we should explain for the listener who hasn't read your book yet, that in the beginning, when she finds out that her first love has died, she decides she wants to go back and look up past loves, not the people she slept with who don't really matter, but the real loves of her life, including two ex-husbands, and see how they are and see, you know, not only how they're doing now, but what their experience of her had been. And so she could explain why she did the things that she did. I mean, it's a very healing process. But I think what you're saying is I don't want you to make it sound like you kind of threw away the book at the end because you really didn't. In my opinion, you went back and you investigated and sort of had such amazing closure with the real, the most important characters. And so by the end, like, ah, just send him a text. I mean... You really had gotten to the important ones. I agree. I agree. And by that point, we're already, we're on to your new life with Stan. Like now we're juiced, right? Like you've met Stan and there's this amazing twist in the book and it was very suspenseful. I don't want you going back and finding some guy from college. Who the hell cares? Yeah, I wish I could meet a Stan. (laughs) Match.com, baby. That's where I met mine. I just want to kind of comment on that in terms of what you're describing, Terry, because One of my favorite quotes about writing fiction is E.L. Doctorow's, and he talks about the way that writing a novel is like driving a car through the fog at night, and you can only see as far as your headlights, but you can get all the way home that way. I love it. And, you know, I talk to so many young writers and writers who are just starting out who really don't think that, you know, the books that they read that they love, that that can possibly be how they're written when in fact, there isn't a writer that I know other than genre writers like espionage or, you know, mystery or whodunit, who doesn't work exactly in the way that you're describing, where it's like, if it doesn't surprise you, why would we do it? I'm you telling know, you. The, what you're describing that moment with Stan, when you, like, it surprised you. That's why we're in it. Like, yeah, that's, that's the delight, right? Lord, I fell in love at those last few chapters. I was like, are you kidding me? sitting back like with her mouth kind of hanging going like holy shit I cannot believe what she's doing now like I can't believe what's happening like that it's like unspooling in front of you that is the best part well the thing is this more than anything for me and not just this particular book but there are so many women in this age in our age group you know over 50 that have given up on love and I don't care what anybody says. It's important. You feel better when you are loved and are loving. You just do. It's better than any vitamin and any drug I've ever had. And, you know, for the most part, when it's really good, it gets better. 
And that's part of, you know, the ending when you talk about the surprise. I mean, no one was more surprised than I was. And I was like, oh, my God, I was in tears when I wrote that last line. And he said, no, here we go. But more than anything, when women who are either lonely or haven't had sex in centuries or wish that they could have a fantasy, it's for them to know that for the most part, even though you read a novel, I didn't write a romance novel. It's plausible. And, you know, you got to get your butt out there and be who you are. And you can have things, everything, goodness, beauty, all of it. You know, I mean, I go to Kabul. People said, who'd you go with? I said, by myself. Well, you've been to Paris? Yeah. Who'd you go with? By myself. You went to Paris by yourself? Are you kidding? I'll go anywhere in the world by myself. I mean, come on. You got to be willing to take risk. And that's on every single level. And that's what we do as writers. And that's why I'm, I'm serious. My respect for memoirs, I am not kidding you. The courage that it takes to be that honest. My hat's off to you, Danny, honey. Thank you. I mean, it's, I don't feel particularly brave. I feel more like the act of trying to shape the chaos and the randomness and the, you know, the things that are painful and like make something that has a shape out of them and that maybe touches another human being, you know, where it's sort of like reaching out a hand and saying like, me too, you know, I've been there too. This is my story. And also this way, my last book, Still Writing, which I wrote for writers and creative people, like one of the things that I realized in writing that book, and I think it's part of why you used the word permission before, Terry, and it's such a great word and it's such an important word for all human beings. But, you know, I think artists, anybody who's trying to create something is constantly engaged in the process of trying to give herself permission, right? And I had this moment when I was writing Still Writing, right? The way that I saw it, and maybe this also applies to writing fiction, is like you're standing in a house. There are lots of windows in the house. You can look through one window at a time. And out of that window, you see that story or that aspect of a life, you know, which is why with memoirs, I mean, if you had told me in 1998 when Slow Motion, my first memoir came out, that I would ever write another one, I would have asked you what you were smoking. I mean, there was just no way that I was ever going to write another memoir. But then I had another window to look through and another story to tell. I love that. Danny, how did you get your first book deal? My first book, and it's a pretty unusual story, and you know, it just doesn't happen this way very often, but I was in graduate school. I was at Sarah Lawrence getting my MFA, and when I started my MFA, I was 25 years old, and I felt like I had burned every bridge. I had made so many mistakes. I had been such a mess. I had you know, dropped out of college. I had taken up with like just a married sociopath, you know, my father had just died in a car accident. My mother had been injured in the car accident very badly. And meanwhile, I hadn't even graduated from high school because I left high school a year early to go to college. So my last degree was from like sixth grade, the yeshiva in sixth grade. So I had been such a fuck up. And I'm saying all that as backstory because I had so much to prove to myself, to the world, to my dead father, to, you know, my mother, to anyone who would listen. And I was determined when I started that graduate degree, that I was going to finish and sell my first novel before I graduated, which is a completely unreasonable goal. And I did. And what happened was that one of my teachers, a mentor named Jerry Bedanis, his wife was an editor at Crown, one of the big, good publishing house. And he loved the book and he gave it to her and she loved it. And she said to me, you should get an agent. And so This is how I got an agent. A friend of mine saw a photograph in a magazine of two very powerful agents in New York who were the co-heads of one of the biggest agencies. And my friend looked at the picture and she said, this woman looks like she's been in psychoanalysis. She will understand your work. (laughs) It wasn't Binky, was it? It was Binky's partner, Esther Newber. (laughs) Oh, my God. Neither one of whom I would bet... (laughs) Good has ever graced the door of a psychoanalyst. But anyway. Was Esther it, at ICM then? Yeah, they were both at ICM. And I, based on my friend's astute publishing advice, I picked up the phone and I called Esther Newberg. You did not. I did. I did everything wrong. I called Esther Newberg, <laughs> her assistant, uh, 
you know, I don't know what I said to the assistant, but the assistant actually put Esther Newberg on the phone. Oh. Okay, and- just wait, we need to stop for a sec. We need to just stop for a sec and just tell the listener in case they don't know that Esther Newberg is one of the legends of the industry. This is like calling Steven Spielberg. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I was really <laughs> had no idea. So I, Esther, Say, what Esther, up, Esther? Esther <laughs> what up? Esther got on the phone and she said, what's it about? And I stuttered out something about what my novel was about. And she said, I'll take a look at it. No. <laughs> I was living on 72nd Street on the Upper West Side. ICM is on 57th Street. I walked my manuscript down to 57th Street. And I took the elevator up to whatever floor ICM was on. I hand-delivered this box, you know, of a manuscript with, like, a cover note. And I went home. And the next day, my phone rang. And it was Esther Newberg saying, can you come in, you know, tomorrow at 3 o'clock? Oh, and, Lord, and I called, I called my friend who had recommended her based on her photograph in the magazine. And I said, do you, do you think she's having me come in because she wants to help me do a course correction and I really shouldn't be a writer. And she really just wants to let me know how bad this book is. I mean, I was, and, and my friend's like, no, honey, I don't think that's what's happened. And so I went in and I had a meeting with her and it was very intimidating and very scary. By the way, I should say she is no longer my agent. She hasn't been my agent for the last 20 years. Yeah. She was my agent for the first 10 years of my career. But she said, I think I can sell your book. And she did uh, within, you know, days. And so I went from, and I think this is really important for listeners who are writers starting out, I went from feeling like a totally washed up, you know, had ruined my life, you know, completely like messed up kid who did not have any kind of bright future ahead of me to, in a very short period of time, being described, because my first novel came out when I was 27, being described as precocious and with all of these achievements. And then I suddenly had a graduate degree and I started teaching. And it was like such a short period of time from A to Z. That is so cool. Terry, Terry, tell us about your first deal. So I started out because I love short stories and I started reading a lot of short stories. I always read novels, but I love short stories. And you know, I had a few published, but then I started writing this novel. I joined the Harlem Writers Guild, was accepted into the Harlem Writers Guild at the time, and I had this short story called Mama Take Another Step. And so I had to read the story in front of some of these writers, some of whom had already been published, right? And I went, I remember I had two shots of tequila first. <laughs> I gold because I was nervous. I had never read in front of anyone. And as soon as I read it, You know, the woman would turn out to be my best friend, the same woman who best friend who died, but who is the one I ended up going to Jamaica to get over at the grief. She raised her hand and she said, honey, that is not a short story. That is the beginning of a novel. So you might as well finish it. And then she looked around. There were 14 people in that room and I'll never forget it. And some of them, they said, she's right. And I said, you know what? I don't know how to write a novel. They said, you'll learn. Because this story is not finished. And long and short of it is I ended up seeing somewhere there was a fellowship. I ended up going to get applying to Yaddle. Someone told me about the, one of these places. And I was pregnant. My baby, my son, who was now 32, moved the first time I was at Yaddle. And I finished this book. I forgot. And then I applied for this fellowship through Houghton Mifflin, and I submitted. Oh, I ended up also, someone told me about a fellowship at Columbia University where you got this graduate workshop in fiction writing. And so I sent Mama, which is I shortened the title to, to there, and I got accepted. It was called the Double Day Something Fellowship, and you got this graduate workshop at Columbia. And so then I hear about the other fellowship through Houghton Mifflin and they would give you $7,500. And I was thinking, Lord, can I use 7,500 bucks? And so I sent them my stories, a few stories, and I didn't send them any of the novel because it was tacky. And I said, you know, I told them I'd won this fellowship through Columbia, blah, 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 blah. And they called me up and said, we're excited about your stories. We love your voice. At the time, I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. But we would really love to read some of your novel. And I said, 
oh, you can't read the novel. It's not readable. They said, why don't you let us be the judge of that? And I said, what? And they said, can you Federal Express it to us? And I said, I cannot afford Federal Express. I will never forget it. And the long and short of it is they paid for Federal Express, and that's how I got published. Mm-hmm. What a great story. Those are both such good stories. And it just goes to show you, you know, there's rules of the game, quote unquote rules, and it can happen all sorts of different ways, right? There's as many different ways of magic to intervene as there are people. There's no one path. There really just isn't. The other thing is this. I think that especially if you don't go to an MFA program, which I, you know, I'm not knocking them, but I'm glad that I didn't is, you know, because I own my own voice and I didn't have to cultivate it. You know what I mean? And I'm not knocking MFA programs, but back in the day, I mean, we are all, for the most part, I think most writers are insecure about what we're doing and even why we're doing it. But ultimately, it still takes a certain level of courage to be able to do it. And so I think that a lot of us are published when we are feeling just like the way you just described, Danny. It's like, we don't know. And that's why they said, you know, can you send us your... I was like, are they kidding me? I was embarrassed. I was even ashamed. I was like, I know they're going to say, how the hell did she get this thing accepted? You know, and the bottom line is, is that that's when I learned how to be a writer is I learned how to mend and how to fix and how to excavate and how to make something sing and at the same time tell the truth. And you pretty much have to do that on some level on your own. You get some guidance, but there's something that you bring with it that you can't be taught. Truth, I completely agree with you. And I think, too, that, you know, I talk to a lot of young writers who think in terms of path, you know, that that's what they should do. They should, you know, it's a professional path to go get a graduate degree, to go get an MFA and that. You know, I used to teach in MFA programs. I I very rarely do these days, but I would begin the first class of the semester by saying to the assembled group of students, you're getting a degree that entitles you to nothing because the idea that it's professional, that what you're doing isn't just, you know, you're sweating and you're bleeding and you're finding the thing inside you, that pea-sized thing, Terry, that you talked about at the beginning, you're finding that and you are you're honing it with everything that you have and nobody can teach you to do that. You can have role models. You can say, Oh my God, she did it. And she did it. And you you can read interviews of writers and you can get to know other writers and you can do all sorts of things to create community for yourself. So you don't feel completely isolated and alone, but ultimately you are doing it by yourself. Yeah. And and not only that, but it's like, if if I can make a little silly analogy, it's sort of like, it's almost like you have a piece of corn on a cob. And the husk is still on and You got to like kind of just pull that husk. You just have to keep doing it until you finally see all the kernels on that corn. Mm-hmm. Nobody can show you really how to do that. And I think what I love about fiction is that it's organic. You know, it requires a lot of work. And the idea to me is that the easier it is to read, the harder it was to write. And a lot of people don't see that. And I think, too, that I'm just more interested in the human condition and my characters' lives. And I disappear when I sit in front of this computer and I'm telling a story. I'm not thinking about the New York Times. I'm not thinking about bestseller dumb. Oh, will this make a movie? I'm not thinking about any of that. What I'm more concerned about is who I now have become. And that is my protagonist. And I'm going through what they're going through. So in the end, when you have to turn it over to someone else to scrutinize and criticize, then that's when I start thinking of it as a novel, as a real book. Okay. And it's like, now I have to go back. But when I taught, I taught for three years at the University of Arizona where I was tenured and uh, I taught graduate and undergraduate. And the thing is, is what I would say to them is this. And back then, the only thing every, all of them wanted to do was get a story in the Freeing New Yorker. And I said, let me tell you something. The only thing we're, I'm going to try to help you do here, which I know what is involved, is I want you to find your voice. You're not going to be this. Everybody in here is not going to sound alike. And back then, a lot of the stories in New Yorker all sounded alike to me. They could have all been written by the same writer, with a few exceptions. This is, we're talking 20 years ago, okay? But I said, you know what? 
you want to find your voice, how many, and, and I knew who in the class back then was, and this is in the 80s, I said, you know, some of you got, I know some of you in here are gay, you know, you're from LA, you know, you're scared, you don't want people to know, I want, that's where I want you to start. And they right. were like, what? And right. my, my line for my office hours, I mean, I told them, I said, you know what, and I wouldn't let them put their names on their stories. I said, if I don't know who wrote this story, you didn't do your job. I want to know who wrote it. I want your voice to be here, whoever the character's voice is. And it was great. I loved it. It wasn't like I was being a bully, but, you know, we often had people crying in class. It was great. It was like church. But that's just my little technique. I mean, I haven't done it in so long. And I'm teaching a class through Penn in a few weeks on voice. Lord only knows I'm going to have to do my homework. (laughs) (laughs) I think you know plenty about voice, madame. Oh, you too. I feel so, so blessed to have done this. I knew today was going to be a blast. I freaking knew it. I love you both so much. And I'm thinking, Danny, you need to get your beautiful butt out to L.A. And Terry and I will take you out to lunch. Oh, yes. To an Adele concert. I'm there. Totally. And and I think there's a possibility, since I'm a prime on Amazon, your books might be here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate this. And I'm just grateful. Me too. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Okay. And I'm going to finish reading you too, Elizabeth. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks, baby. Bye. That was so much fun. If you enjoyed it half as much as I love taping it, I'd so appreciate it if you'd spread the love with some gold stars wherever you're listening, iTunes, SoundCloud, or on Stitcher, which we're now on. I can't wait to reveal who we've got coming up next and hope you will stay tuned. Between now and next month, if you'd like support going from idea to done with your book, you can find information on my writing membership group and details about joining me at one of my writing retreats in gorgeous Carmel-by-the-Sea. All of that is over at beautifulwriterspodcast.com. You can also find me over at bookmama.com, where birthing book babies is easier than the humankind. Thank God. Thanks again for listening. I hope it fills your creative well. Until next time, write on. Write on.